Well, from 63 to 72, the, the legislature did not have any of its own permanent staff. The governor's office provided all the budget work. The attorney general's office provided bill drafting and those kinds of things. This is Under the Dome. Today's episode is hosted by NC Insider editor Colin Campbell, and this is his last time hosting the show. Today, we'll take a closer look at the history of the North Carolina State Legislative Building. Welcome to Under the Dome. I'm Colin Campbell, editor of the NC Insider. And this week on our Closer Look episode, we're going to take a closer look at the place where all the uh, action that we normally talk about happens, the the legislative building. Uh, Certainly, if you've been there uh, once or a million times, your first few visits were probably marked by the questions of, how do I get out of here? I'm lost now uh, because it is so difficult to navigate. Uh, and then also probably some questions about the architecture. Uh, why do I feel like I'm in a you know 70s suburban shopping mall? Uh, so to sort of get it at how we got here and um, how we ended up with a, a building like this to, to house the seats of power in, in Raleigh, uh, we're joined this week by uh, unofficial uh, legislative history expert, uh, Jerry Cohen, who uh, a longtime uh, legislative uh, staff attorney for the building for over uh, about 37 years, uh, retired a few years back and is still our uh, go-to source in the media for, for all these types of topics. Jerry, thanks so much for joining us. Sure. So to start us off, uh, tell us a little bit how we, we got uh, the legislative building we have today. Up until obviously the, the 60s, they were meeting in the, the old state capitol, which is now more for ceremonial events and school groups. Um, but at some point they decided they needed a better space, I guess. Well, through the 1950s, there was a discussion of the legislature having its own legislative building, and the 57 or 59 session passed a bill funding it and setting up a commission to do the construction, site work, etc. And the um, building opened for the 1963 session. Uh, The floor plan was a lot different at the time. Each member just had one office. There was only a handful of legislative assistants. There was like a uh, steno pool, is what they used to call it, of, of people uh, assisting um, uh, in that uh, process. Um, the legislature decided in the 19, about 1970, sometime in the mid 70s, to build what became the legislative office building. And at first, just occupied three floors of it. And that building opened the spring of 1981 uh, for the legislature. At that point, the legislative building, a lot of changes made. Members got two offices, one for a legislative assistant during session. Um, The basement had originally been just a parking deck. It was gradually added other uses. A cafeteria was added in the early 70s and staff offices. Uh, eventually, the legislature took over the entire legislative office building. That might have been in the uh, maybe early 1990s when other tenants, the Secretary of State was there, State Auditor was there. I think one other division of state government was in the legislative office building. Historically, the um, where the legislative office building was, was a um, Norfolk Southern, some rail spurs from... Um, um, they're in a freight warehouse. Um, the legislative building itself was residences. Uh, old maps I found that the house chamber was a Nabisco bakery huh. uh, on that site prior to until the late 50s. 
Yeah, so they uh, have a lot of people who are probably displaced from homes and neighborhoods in, in this corner of Raleigh as it transitioned from residential to uh, this big state government complex that it is today. Correct. The, the entire area from um, Jones Street to Peace Street was residential and commercial um, houses. Halifax Street ran down the center of it, but uh, eventually the entire thing became state government uses. Sometime about 15 years ago, I was talking to an employee in the house clerk's office, um, um, uh, long since retired by this point, and I asked her, how long she had how long have you been here she was probably in her late 80s at that point and she says oh i grew up here and i said what do you mean you grew up here she said well my house is where the senate chamber is now second floor wow so literally on top of where she she had previously lived yes Wow. That's got to be a strange experience to uh, uh, have your house get torn down and then be replaced by your workplace. Uh, yes, that's right. And also the area where the Museum of History and Natural Sciences was residential and commercial until about the same era. Yeah. Uh, looking back, I was, I was reading some sort of old history of it. And it sounds like uh, when they before they built this building, um, Lawmakers, because there's just so little space in the old state capitol, were having to go to meetings all across uh, state government buildings and often had to miss meetings because they couldn't walk three blocks in, in time to get to another one. Um, and then I guess this building was hailed as, oh, you can do everything under one roof. You can eat lunch. You can go to all your committee meetings. All your offices are there. So I guess that was the sort of selling point of, of having a standalone legislative building, right? Yes. North Carolina was the first state to have its own building solely for the General Assembly. Other buildings functions at what's now a senior residence, what was then the Sir Walter Hotel, was the hub. Many legislators lived there uh, the entire session in, the, in a resident, basically a residential hotel. There were meeting rooms there. A lot of the, the business took place in uh, informally in uh, function rooms at the Sir Walter Hotel back prior to the legislative building being built. There was very little space. The, when the legislative building was originally built, there was not not even many committee rooms. Yeah, and obviously those are still sort of the cramped committee rooms we see today. I was, I was looking back, it looks like those haven't really changed much at all. The, the horseshoe-shaped uh, table that they sit around in the, the rules committee room seems like it's unchanged since at least the 70s, if not perhaps the original days of the building. Yeah, that that uh, that room was the finance committee room from '63 to '81, and then the the long room on the other side of the building under the Senate chamber was the appropriations committee room from '63 to '81. Yeah, it's hard hard to imagine the number of people that attend those meetings now getting crammed into uh, these the smaller building in the legislative building. It, it sure was. It sure was cramped. Yeah. Um, so. What do you know about the, the history of the, the architecture there? I know Edward Durrell Stone designed it. Um, ha have the complaints that we hear today always sort of been in place about uh, the way it was designed and sort of the, the odd way it looks compared to a lot of other uh, state legislative uh, buildings in the, in the country? Well, it was a topic of much discussion. The architecture is pretty uniform in all the quadrants. And um, when you mentioned earlier about it being lost, especially at night, even when I had worked in the building for 35 years, I would still get lost 
at night when I didn't have any cues from sunlight. I remember once, um, 2010 or so, coming out of one of these 14-hour appropriations committee meetings, going back to work on the budget. It may have been 11 p.m. and coming to what I thought was the back of the building, but it was the front on Jones Street. And I asked the people at the desk, how long has this desk been here? <laughs> and I was totally backwards. And it was, I was going out to Jones Street when I thought I was leaving to go across the bridge. And then, of course, then there's the bridge tunnel story, which is a different but comparable but a parallel story. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting the way it's changed. When I looked at the old floor plans, the, the back entrance, I guess, because there was no need to go across out the backside to, towards the legislative office building because it didn't exist at the time, was actually the members-only dining area. So I guess in the early days, you would have had that visual cue of, hey, which entrance is which? And um, nowadays, they, it looks sort of similar if you're uh, headed towards one or the other. I, I've made the exact same mistake you were talking about of thinking I was going out the, the front when I was actually in the back of the building. Um, so I gather that changed when the, the legislative office building was um, created and you had this whole bridge and passageway situation. What, what's the backstory of that? Because I understand um, originally there was a there's talk of a tunnel before the, the bridge was built. Well, the legislative office building, when it was built, it was designed to have a tunnel to the legislative building. In fact, until 15 years ago, it sloped down to the sidewalk level under Jones Street. And the story is, I don't think it's just a story because it's a fact, that the proposal was to build a tunnel. It would come out somewhere in the basement of the legislative building to make it easy to go back and forth. It wasn't just, it wasn't just members, it was staff, media, et cetera. The cost was projected back in 82, at half a million dollars. And there was a series of editorials, I remember as a series in the News and Observer, decrying the waste of money just to keep people dry. And whether the editorials were right or wrong, it was stinging anyway. And the legislative response was eventually to build a bridge across, um, uh, which street is that? Was it Lane? Lane Street, which, I think. Is Lane Street, yeah. build, a, build a bridge, which actually cost a million dollars, twice as much because they had to underground all the power lines. <laughs> and so it actually cost twice as much and not a peep from our friendly editorial writers. I don't know, it was Claude Sitton at the time or who, who it exactly was that, wrote the editorials if he was editor i'm sure he had a hand in it and 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 um um you know during the interim in the legislative office building before the bridge was built and after the tunnel been scrapped there were school children and pedestrians who are hit crossing lane street you know and uh um you know school groups and stuff there were pedestrian accidents so uh eventually the Bridge got built, um, and it's until we became more security conscious. Everything was totally open to the public to come in and out of both buildings. Yeah, and it's uh, I, I guess history sort of repeats itself in that there's this uh, item that's getting a lot of chatter in the the House budget of spending eight million dollars for some sort of covered pedestrian walkway. I guess the concern being that because you never did the tunnel, um, people get wet if it's it's raining and they've got to run between uh, the two buildings. So I guess we'll see how that goes and whether there's sort of a 
a similar outcry over this that changes the, the budget process well, going forward or whether we get some rain protection? Well, I have not seen the plans for that. I did see that budget item and I don't know exactly what it would be. I know from having ferried carts of paper back and forth because we're less paper conscious that you know, we get documents wet, et cetera, et cetera. I don't want to get into whether or not a covered walkway should be built or exactly what it would be. I know there are some issues like if if there was there and folks could pass through and once they pass security in one building or the other, then if that was secure, then they could go to the other building without going through security again. So that may be some of the issues. Um, um, I'm not going to get myself involved in whether or oh, not yeah. that should be built. Yeah. Uh, looking back at the, the uh, main legislative building, have there been many changes over time, both in terms of how the chambers are set up um, and then just other um, aspects uh, of that building? Uh, it just does feel like it's sort of in, in many ways a time capsule, but I'm sure there have been some improvements or at least redecorating over the years that you worked there. There were, may there were some I think the Senate chamber, you'd have to send a clerk's office. I think the Senate chamber had a major overhaul and redoing maybe 2010. And the House chamber, sometime in the last five years or so, when the first building was open, there were pneumatic tubes to carry. The press was actually in the gallery in the House chamber, and there were pneumatic tubes the first several years, I'm told, where copies of bills would be ferried up to the press through a pneumatic tube from the clerk's office. When I started working in 77, the tubes were still there, but they were not functional. There was no compressed air for them anymore. And they, I think they, the tubes may have remained there another 15 or 20 years, but non-functional because eventually the press was allowed on the floor and the need vanished. Oh yeah, there's a sergeant arms could pass things out and Nowadays, we have the dashboard system that anybody can keep up with what's going on on the right. floor as far as amendments. Um, what sort of changes have you seen in terms of, of staffing levels uh, over the time you've been there? Because obviously, it seems like when the legislative building was created, you didn't really get you know much in the way of, of staff. Um, and now it just seems like you know everybody at least has a legislative assistant, but there are all these sort of back-end staff folks that keep the place running. Um, in, in ways that, you know, when they had a much smaller space, I don't think uh, any of those folks were uh, in existence in terms of those positions. Well, from 63 to 72, the, the legislature did not have any of its own permanent staff. The Budget Bureau was called and the governor's office provided all the budget work. The attorney general's office provided bill drafting and those kinds of things in the 70, in 72, I think the Fiscal Research Division was created in 74. The research, now legislative analysis division was created. And in 77, the bill drafting division was created. North Carolina was the last state to have its own bill drafting when that was started in the 77th session. That's when I was hired and the first crop of people. Um, then there are other divisions added and unadded like uh, performance evaluation. There's been a gradual growth of what we called at the time there's sitting in this partisan staff, leadership staff, there's been different words, and that's gradually grown over time as well. Yeah, I noticed looking at the old floor plans, the uh, the speaker's office, and I guess at the time it would have just been the Senate president, uh, since that was who the, the power player was on the Senate side before 
lieutenant governor's powers got got shifted and their offices were only marginally larger than the the offices of the rank and file members and now of course you know there's entire corners of the building that are are taken up by the various staff folks for the the corner offices as they're known yeah that happened and when the legislative office building opened in 81 and then the leadership got basically suites of offices as offices opened for about half or a little bit more than half of the members in the legislative office building. Uh, okay. So that was just a, a function of having a uh, extra space for everybody and uh, leadership uh, took up a little bit more than, than everybody else was getting. And there, there's actually one person who uh, representative Becky Carney from Mecklenburg, who's in the legislature quite a while. She's a Raleigh native and um, she was, she worked on the legislative staff in the, 65 or 67 session as a bill typist and proofreader. So she'd be a very good person to talk to about what it was like then um, during during that era um, after the legislative building opened, but before a lot of major expanses, she has lots of fun stories. Then she eventually moved to Charlotte. Yeah. Uh, has the, the same period to seen a lot of changes in sort of session length. Um, I noticed uh, it looks like the only it's been since the seventies that we've had a, a short session in the even years. It used to be that the, the odd year long session was pretty much it for, for every two years. Well, up until 1960, 67 or so members per diem was limited to a certain number of days. And I, I didn't really start hanging around until 71, but the stories were at the time, from people there is that once that number of days ran out, there was a lot of pressure from rank and file members to leadership to end the session. And, and, um, and at the time also, the constitution only allowed the legislature to adjourn one day without a joint resolution. So um, there were Saturday sessions through 1969, pro forma Saturday sessions to meet the constitutional requirement. There were regular Friday sessions um, in the Senate until around 91 and in the House till sometime later in the 90s, there were regular working sessions on Fridays. And now we've gone normally to the pattern of adjourn on Thursday over to Monday. But the constitution was amended in 1970 to allow adjournment for up to three days. Okay, so that sort of shifted a lot of the um sort of a more leisurely pace, I guess, uh, but uh, for much longer stretches of time than, than we saw in the past. I was also sort of curious if the um, not being as cramped, you could uh, had less of a pressure to to get in and ha in an, into town and out of town quickly uh, just because you you wanted to get back to your, your spacious home office in, in whatever district you're in rather than uh, be, be cramped in some tiny little closet in the legislative building somewhere. Right. 1974 was the first what we call short session. It wasn't called that then because in 74, it wasn't short at all. Although it didn't start till April, it ran several months and it wasn't until the 76th session that it became short because there was a lot of pushback from members that they had not expected in 1974 to be there for months. Yeah, and now that's sort of the the norm in in, uh, in both years is that you know we we get to August and September and uh, no one really has a, a good sense for when the long session will end or whether there'll be another session for redistricting later on and uh, and so on and so on. It, it feels like it doesn't necessarily have a, a definitive end anymore, and, and I guess a lot of that has has changed uh, just in the last forty or fifty years. 
Yeah, I mean, I, when I first came to the legislature, it was a special session in October of 71 when I was in grad school at Chapel Hill. I came to work on, I came over to work on a piece of legislation on absentee voting. And here it is 50 years later, and I'm still working on it. Yeah, just, you know, the, the, <laughs> the topics don't seem to change that much. If you look back at, at old legislation, we're still grappling with a lot of the same issues. And uh, it sounds like over your many decades of your career, it's, it's the same thing. It's a, the issues didn't really go away that you started out with, that you finished up on and still are, are called on to talk about to media and others. All right. Well, I think that covers the time we've got sure. for this week's edition. Uh, Jerry Cohen is a longtime uh, legislative uh, attorney, now retired, and uh, sort of our resident expert on, on all things General Assembly. Jerry, thanks so much for joining us. Sure. Thanks, Colin. For more from our politics team, subscribe to the News and Observer at newsobserver.com slash subscribe. Follow us on Twitter at Under the Dome and NC Insider, and sign up for our weekly political newsletter at newsobserver.com slash newsletters. Thanks for listening.